Good morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Welcome to North Point stream service today. We're glad that you could join us. First of all, I want to start by thanking everyone who's been giving online through our portal at www.hollandnorthpoint.org. Your giving has been inspirational to me, and I appreciate it very much. If you'd like to give, just go to that link, www.hollandnorthpoint.org, and click on the Donate tab, and you can donate there also. Well, we're going to be talking about the Pharisee and the tax collector today in Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be reading that story together in just a moment. You may remember a movie called Rain Man. It was a few years back, and it starred Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman played uh, Raymond, a man, that was, a man with autism that, uh, that came in contact with his long-lost brother, Charlie Babbitt. He would call him Charlie Babbitt all the time. And uh, it has, he has a line in it that cracks me up. Charlie asked Raymond if he would like to drive his car. Now, Charlie drives a classic convertible. I think it was an old Chevy convertible that was just in pristine condition. And the thought of, of, uh, of uh, Raymond driving that car was just kind of hilarious and out of the norm because he was truly not capable or competent to drive that car. And Raymond would always reply, I'm an excellent driver. I'm an excellent driver. And that just kind of cracked me up to see that. I run into a lot of people like Raymond, though, people whose self-assessment doesn't quite match up with their abilities, especially when it comes to driving. There's something about being in a car, there's something about driving down the road that just makes me super critical of other people. <clears throat> I'm constantly uh, looking at their driving habits and seeing how they're doing, and their, 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 their ability to drive just doesn't match up with mine, or so I think. I can easily convince myself that my abilities to drive far exceed theirs and that they are far inferior to me in the driving department. If they make a particularly egregious movement in their car, I bestow upon them the title of Yahoo. In my mind, I think, what a Yahoo. That's my term for people that don't drive well. I do all this naturally and easily in my head virtually every day of my life. We love to pass judgment on people, and this tendency just tends to get worse when we ascribe it to spiritual matters. We look at other people's spiritual lives, and we say things like, I would never do that, or I can't believe that a Christian would act that way, or I don't understand why they would do that, and, and on and on it goes. We act like these spiritual shortcomings are proof of our own righteousness, and we pass judgment on them because it makes us feel better about our own selves by comparison. The ability to see the sins of others makes us feel like we're more spiritual, more righteous, and more pious, when actually it's a sign that the opposite is true. Jesus illustrates this tendency to be critical of others and give ourselves a cut, cut ourselves some slack in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. We're faced with two characters in this story. There's a Pharisee and there's a tax collector. And the two couldn't be more different from each other. The first person that we meet in this story is the Pharisee. And it says this, Then Jesus told this story about some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth 
of all of my income. Now, you need to understand a couple of things about this Pharisee. We have our understanding of what a Pharisee is tainted by the New Testament. It's, it's shaped by the New Testament story of the Pharisees, and we see them as enemies of Jesus. They were constantly nipping at his heels. They were constantly trying to catch him in mistakes. They were constantly trying to debate with him, causing trouble for him, trying to trip him up at every turn. But in the eyes of the average Jew, this Pharisee was a spiritual rock star. He was somebody that they, tried to, that they really believed in. They, he, they believed that his prayer was true. You see, he didn't extort anybody. He didn't never think of committing an adultery. He was allergic to any kind of sin. He was a rock star of tithing. He would even take his, his mint that he grew in the garden, and he would carefully count out ten leaves and give one of them to the, to the temple as an offering, and he tithed on everything. He was very scrupulous about his life. His word was his bond. He fasted every Monday and Thursday of the week in order to, to be above and beyond what the Bible said was fasting. In the Bible, it, it only encumbered the Israelites with one day of fasting a year, and that was the Day of Atonement. You could choose to fast other times, but the only one that they were required to fast was the Day of Atonement. This Pharisee uh, made it his practice to fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, to go above and beyond so that he could impress God with his, with his fasting and with his works that he did. Even by, measured by any conventional standard, the Pharisee was a religious success. Even he thought so, and that's where the problem lie. He thought that he was a spiritual success. He had eye disease, the letter eye disease. He uses the word I five times in this short passage of Scripture. I tithe, I give, I'm not like them, I'm not like that tax collector. He says it over and over again. And then we're faced with the, with the, with the tax collector. It says in verse 13 and 14, it says, But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There couldn't have been two greater contrasts on the face of the earth than the Pharisee and the tax collector. If the Pharisee was the superstar of faith, then the tax collector was the polar opposite of him. He was at best a scoundrel. The Romans sold, their, sold the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder, and the tax collector was obviously the one that had paid the most for the right to collect taxes. But once he had purchased that right to collect taxes, all rules were off. He could collect as much as the market would bear. If the tax rate was 10%, he could charge 15, 20, 25, 30, 35% if he wanted to, whatever he could get. And there was no escaping the tax collector. Every time you bought something, you had to go see the tax collector. Every time you purchased something, you had to go see the tax collector. Every time you had some income, you had to go see the tax collector. So these tax collectors were very wealthy, and they came about it by shafting their fellow Jews, and they were despised for it. They had literally traded their integrity for ill-gotten gain. Haddon Robinson wrote this about the tax collector. He said, as a result, extortion was built into the job. Injustice was part of the trade. Tacitus, the Roman historian, says that he once visited a village that had such an honest tax collector that the village erected a monument to him. 
Some men are traitors by one craven deed of cowardice, but a tax collector was a traitor all day, every day. He was despised by most people. Instead, he spent much of his time with extortionists, evildoers, and the sexually loose. The story for the tax collector is brief because everybody knew who he was. Jesus just says there was a tax collector. And immediately everybody understood that this man was a scoundrel. He was the lowest form of life on earth. He was not worthy of their attention at all. He was a traitor. He was a sinner. And so Jesus tells this story about that. But the stunning part of this is not that Jesus mentions the tax collector, but what he says about him afterwards. He says this, I tell you the truth, that sinner, this sinner, meaning the tax collector, I tell you the truth, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted." This is dynamite in the ears of the listeners to Jesus telling this story, especially to the Pharisees who thought that they had it made. The Pharisees believed that they were all right in God's sight because of what they did, that they had somehow earned God's favor by being good enough to merit God's grace. And that wasn't true at all. The key to this whole thing, as mentioned by Jesus, is humility. He says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who are humble, who humble themselves, will be exalted. In James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, it says this, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he says this, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. What is humility? Humility in this case is the ability to understand your heart's condition before God, before Jesus Christ. It is the ability to see yourself as God sees you in your sins. He sees you as a sinner. He sees you as someone that is, that is filthy and dirty. And we need to see ourselves that way before Christ. Many of us are like the church at Laodicea. In Revelation chapter 3, it says that the church at Laodicea, that they were proud of themselves, that they thought that they were all right. It says, you say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You see, the Bible tells us of our real condition. We think that we're all right in God's eyes because we've done some good things, because we've, we've compared ourselves to others and we've come out on top. We usually choose the person that's worse than us so that we get a good comparison. But we think that we're okay. We think that we're rich in God's grace and mercy when in reality we are poor and blind and naked. We, when we see our true condition outside of Christ, we are living humble lives. When we see what we really are in God's eyes without Jesus Christ in our life, we see how we really are and we're humble. There are two lessons that we can learn from this parable, and they both involved humility. The first lesson that we learn is that the Pharisee focused on other people's shortcomings. The tax collector focused on his own shortcomings. He focused on himself. Do you grieve over your sin? 
Do you justify your feelings by pointing out others that are much worse than you are? It's easy to do. There are so many good examples of who's worse than I am, and I can point them out very easily. I can compare myself to others and make myself feel better about myself by finding someone else that's worse than me and pointing them out to God and saying, look, see, they're worse than I am, God. I'm a good guy in comparison with them. But that doesn't cut it with God. There were two brothers who terrorized a small town for decades. They were unfaithful to their wives. They abused their children. They cheated at business. Suddenly, the younger brother died one day, and the surviving brother went to the pastor of the local church. He said, I'd like you to conduct my brother's funeral, he said, but it's important to me that during the service, you tell everyone that he was a saint. The pastor said, he was far from a saint. You know as well as I do that he, that, he, that he cheated on his wife and that he was a carouser and all of that kind of stuff. And, and the wealthy brother pulled out his checkbook and he said, I'm willing to write a check for $5,000 to your church if you'll just say that he's a saint. Well, the pastor began his eulogy one day, and he began to say, Everyone here knows that the deceased was a wicked man. He was a womanizer and a drunk. He terrorized his employees and cheated on his taxes. And then he paused and he said, But as evil and as wicked as he was, compared to his older brother, he was a saint. Well, that got the people's attention, I'm sure. When we stand before God, there will be no comparisons with others. You will stand or fall according to your own actions. We will be responsible for everything that we said. The Bible says that we will be responsible for even the idle words that we speak, the thoughtless words that we speak. We're going to be held accountable for them. Romans, the book of Romans says, All have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. We are far better to understand the sad condition of our own hearts without Christ. Left to our own devices, we will spiral downward. We will become worse and worse than, than better and better. We're not becoming better and better. We're left to our own devices, we become worse and worse. Lesson number one is we need to recognize that we cannot compare ourselves to others to gain righteousness in God's eyes. It doesn't matter if the worst person in the world is standing next to you when you stand before God. You are going to have to answer for your own sins, for your own actions, and for your own way of life. The second lesson that we learn is you can do all of the right things and still be wrong. You can do all of the right things and still be wrong. Jesus told a very disturbing piece of scripture in Matthew chapter 7. He said this, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day... Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply to them, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's law. That's a disturbing piece of scripture for us this morning, and we need to understand it a little bit better. You see, on its surface, this principle seems manifestly unfair. Imagine that you're standing before God, and He is about to pronounce judgment on you. And you say, listen, God, look at all of the good things that I did. I put something in the offering every week at the church. I made sure that I fed the hungry. I made sure that I, that I prayed for the sick. I did all of these great things, God. And God will look at us, and He'll say, get away from me. I never knew you. That just seems unfair. 
But Jesus says the key to the kingdom of God is not what you do, it's doing the will of the Father. What does that mean? Well, God's standard is different from our standard. In 1 Samuel 16, there's the story of of the prophet Samuel going to choose the next king of Israel from Jesse's sons. And he goes through his sons from the oldest to the next to the youngest one. And he says, is this the one? And God says, no, that's not the one. And finally, they call for David, the little boy that no one thought to think of as the next king of Israel because he was just a kid. And God says, this is the one that I've chosen. This is the one that is going to be the next king of Israel. And Samuel kind of asked, well, wait a minute, isn't he a little bit young for the job? And it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What does that mean, the Lord looks at the heart? It means that He judges not only the actions that we do, but the intention of the actions that we do. He doesn't just judge what we've done for Him. He judges why we've done it for Him. You see, in, in, uh, in uh, the book of Romans, it says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You need a transformation in the way that you think. You need a transformation of, the chi- of your mind. It's not the good things that you do that save you. It's not the good acts that you perform that make you right in God's sight. It's, 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 it's your heart condition. It says in Titus 3, 5 through 7, He saved us, He saved us, not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life of the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out His Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence that we will have eternal life. You see, it's not the good things that you do. You don't earn God's favor. I've used this illustration before. I'm going to use it again. If I give my wife a gift, she's got a choice at that point to to decide why I gave her that gift. Did I do something wrong and I'm trying to earn her favor? In that case, I'm not going to get along very well with her. Or I can give her that gift out of a heart full of love for her just because I love her. Just because I love her, I give her gifts. And there's a world of difference between the two. If I have to earn my wife's love, how much is enough to earn her love? No, that's not why I do good things for her. That's not why I bless her. I bless her, I do good things for her because I love her. And it's just an overflow of my heart's desire to bless her because I love her. The same thing is true for God. If you're doing good things because you're trying to earn God's favor, you're lost already. You can't earn God's favor. After all, how much would be enough? You never know when you've done enough to earn God's favor. You just do the best that you can and hope that it's enough. When God said that He forgives us of our sins simply for asking and loving Him, it says in 1 John 1, 9 and 10, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say if we do enough good things and we confess our sins. It says if we confess our sins, God's mercy kicks in, His grace kicks in, and then everything that we do after that is an act of love towards God because of what He's already done 
for you and I. There's a story in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah has a vision of the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. And it says that he saw the Lord and it was a traumatizing event in his life. It says that he saw him sitting on his throne attended by six winged angels who cried, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The Bible says that the foundations of the temple shook at their voices and the whole room was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's reaction to that is interesting. He doesn't say, wow, cool, I get to see God. He isn't thrilled with this whole thing. As a matter of fact, the only thing that happens to Isaiah is that he is struck by his own sinfulness in the light of the glory of God and the pure holiness that God has. He says this, Then I said, It is all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people of filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Isaiah was struck by his, own, by his own sinfulness in the light of God's glory. There is coming a day when we will stand in the presence of God, in His very presence, and the only thing that we'll be able to see is our own sinfulness and our own, our own tawdriness in the light of God's perfect glory. We won't be able to compare ourselves with anybody else. We won't be able to say, look God, look at that guy, look how sinful he is. We'll have to stand on our own merits and our own ways that we've tried to please God. But the, but the good thing about this is, is that there's healing and there's, there's forgiveness in this. It says in verse 6, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and he said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you've done against God. It doesn't matter how sinful you see yourself as. What matters is that God forgives you today. He gives you grace and He gives you goodness and He gives you fullness of life if you'll ask Him for it. He offers full and free forgiveness to everyone that calls upon His name. If you've never done that, you can do that today. You can go from being unsure of your salvation to being sure that you're called by God and that you're forgiven. If that's you, I'd like you to pray this prayer with me right now. Dear Lord Jesus, I love you. I thank you for dying for me and for, your sin, for my sins that were forgiven by your blood that was shed on the cross. And Lord, I ask you to forgive me. I'm not trying to earn your, my salvation. I'm depending upon your grace and your goodness to cleanse me from all sin and unrighteousness. Help me to live for you, God, not as a way of earning your grace, but as a way of responding to your love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And amen. If you prayed that prayer with me, you're a new creation in Jesus Christ right now. And you are free from the sin that bound you for so long. I want you to write to me, Pastor Joe at hollandnorthpoint.org. And I'm going to send you some materials that will help you get on with your Christian life and grow strong in Him. I trust that this word brought grace to your life. I hope that it sets you free, that it sets you free from any condemnation that you might have. You have a great Lord's Day. God bless you, and we'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Mike Sabatino. I serve as the associate pastor here at North Point. I just want to take a minute and thank you for being with us. We pray you and your family have been encouraged in your faith by being with us today. We understand that everyone is facing difficulty as our community copes with the new reality of life with COVID-19. 
We also understand that many are doing so on a non-existent or substantially reduced income. In light of that, we want to encourage those of you who are able to give to continue doing so. It's by your faithfulness that we're able to meet those with the greatest need, whether that needs tangible goods or emotional and spiritual support. So here's some practical ways that you can give and support the ministry at North Point. First of all, you can just send a check directly to the church at 4200 152nd Avenue, Holland, Michigan, 49424. Secondly, you can go to our website, www.hollandnorthpoint.org, and just click the Donate button in the upper right-hand corner. And thirdly, you can give by text, 616-202-5021. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks for supporting the ministry to our community, and have a blessed day.